Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of The Rosé Room. Cashin and I can't wait to introduce our next guest, but before we do, we wanted to introduce you to this advertisement from our friendly sponsor, Holy Dose. All right, guys, so I wanted to interrupt you because I really just am so jealous and I can't even stand it anymore. So Taylor has the best skin I have ever seen. And if you've seen her Instagram, if you've seen her in person, you definitely know that she doesn't wear makeup. And it's because she doesn't have to because she takes Holy Dose, right? It's true. Holy Dose has been an awesome addition into my beauty routine, and I have been recommending it to my clients. If you're struggling with your skin or your hair or your nails, I always feel like people are trying to get the best of vitamins and stuff like that. But I've noticed such an increased difference with Holy Dose and with the collagen powders. Taking it in powder form is just so much more potent, and it has other additional types of vitamins that have just been really giving me the results I want. So if you're interested in joining our amazing sponsor for this podcast, Holy Dose, make sure you sign up with their newsletter or visit holydose.com. That's W-H-O-L-Y-D-O-S-E.com. And what's our code, Cashin? Our code is DUROSE for 10% off your purchase, and that's D-E-U-X-R-O-S-E. That's D-E-U-X-R-O-S-E for 10% off your purchase so you can get glowing skin like Taylor. All right, now back to our show and keep the flattery coming. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Cashton, um, it's a new week, new vibe, new everything. I'm staring at you on the couch this week, which isn't our usual setup. Do you want to introduce who we have today and what the vibe of the show is going to be? Oh, we're also sharing a mic, so you won't be hearing duo chatter today either. All right. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited. I have yet another friend on the podcast, the beautiful Dominica Deanna. Minnie is what I call her. Um, she and I actually went to UNLV together. We have the same major. We were in the same sorority, and we really clicked because we were both the girliest of girls. Um, <laughs> so true. <laughs> Um, just such a sweet angel. And we actually really reconnected because she's a fan of the Rosé Room podcast, which was really fun. And we're going to dive in today about the conversation of women in finances. Uh, Dominica is a financial advisor, and she's going to be talking to us about the realities of being a female in this industry, some of the obstacles that people face as women um, when it comes to financial literacy and some of the pathways that she'll advise for you to take when it comes to bettering your knowledge of finances and what you can do to better prepare. So without further ado, hi, Minnie. Hi, Minnie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, so excited. I know. I'm so excited too. go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit. Uh, tell people what you do. Tell people what you majored in. All that fun stuff. Wonderful. So hi, everyone. I am so excited to be on the other side of this because I've been listening to this podcast now for a couple of weeks. And so it's really fun sitting here next to Cashin and Taylor and to be in this seat to talk about what I love to do. So I'm a financial advisor at uh, Morgan Stanley. I've been in the business for about five years and I really love what I do. It really just comes down to helping people. But when I first got into this business, it kind of took me as surprise as to how much I would really like it because for the longest time I was really intimidated by this space. I actually majored in uh, journalism with Cashton at UNLV. <laughs> and I remember that I did not like journalism as much as I thought I would. <laughs> I did an internship and I absolutely hated it. And I was like, okay, maybe writing is more of a hobby and mm -hmm. not a career path. And so that's just kind of how it all started from there. I would do blogging. I did some practice writing with just like personal finance tips. It was an interest of mine that I just had on the side. So I still would write 
for fun. Um, but then really dived into this business like five years ago formally. Now I love it. And it's my understanding that you did write for Forbes a little bit, right? Yes. Yes. And I still do on and off. Um, I'm part of the Forbes Finance Council. So it's a really cool organization because it's an invitation only type of mentorship and leadership community. So they pick up bankers, um, thought leadership, like writers, bloggers, investors, advisors, and they pull all of us together to kind of be in a room and talk about what we know and what we're good at and speak to our expertise. So I get to write personal finance articles, which is so much fun. Ooh, I really I like it. I like to read those too. And if, and if you aren't um, a woman and you, or if you are a woman and you're looking for a lot of that financial literacy being young, I think in general, financial articles are really like where it's at. There's so much going on on social media, but I, I don't know. Like, I don't think that's like the best place to be seeking financial advice. I don't know how you feel about. Oh like, no, I would, I would completely vibe. agree. <laughs> and I think that's, that's like, yeah, we'll dive into it definitely, but you can definitely get lost in the weeds with just listening to anyone and everyone writing on there. Right. I mean, the internet's a great thing, but I think you can also get a lot of bad advice. Yeah. So. And I think so many of us right now are just learning how to do this by ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. we were talking earlier about how we don't really have any parents that have been strong not necessarily financially not successful, but never done the necessity of like that heavy investing. Like I have never been part of a fortune 500 bank or, you know, any of those mm -hmm. types of things. So I think, um, the figuring it out yourself vibe for most millennials and under is definitely in the seasons of the current market. Have you seen a lot of, I know that you deal with kind of some people who have a lot of money, but do all of your clients like know what's going on when they come to talk to you as an advisor, or is it like pretty literate people. It's really interesting that you asked that because I think when it comes to being a financial advisor, usually people have the impression that if you have a financial advisor, you must be very wealthy. And for a lot of the times that is the case, right? Because people need help with different complex issues that they have in their family dynamics, whether they run a business, whether they've come into a lot of money, they need help managing it. But I also get a lot of great interaction with people who are just learning about investing. And we talked about this earlier, just like as we were getting set up, but I think there's a huge gap in the market and in society in general with teaching people about finances that maybe aren't ready yet for professional advice. They're not in a position to pay for the advice quite yet. And so you run into that gap of like, okay, well, my parents didn't teach me about finances growing up. Now I'm graduating school. Now I'm going into an adulthood. And how do I do my taxes? Um, how do I do a budget? How can I save for a house? These are really important milestones that you should be preparing for years and years in advance, not just having those thoughts when you wake up one day and you're 25 and you're like, okay, now how do I achieve these goals I've always wanted? There's a huge gap there. Minnie, will you go into your familial background a little bit? Cause you and I have talked about this. We have had a very similar upbringing and I think that really it's a success story, right? Because if you come from a family that maybe didn't set you up financially, which is there's nothing wrong with that but also didn't have the conversation of financial wealth or accumulation or management. Like that's mm -hmm. a really big feat to overcome as well. And I know that you've done such a great job at not only obviously understanding it, but really pioneering it. I mean, to come from your background and then to be a writer for Forbes, to be on their council, mm -hmm. to be at an FA, one of the only FAs in your, you know, or one of the only one of the few mm -hmm. <laughs> working FAs, sorry, compliance. Um, <laughs> we love compliance. We love compliance. Um, but you know, I really want you to talk about that because it's so relatable. And I think that the facade of banking or anything that has to do with finances is so 
prestigious to a lot of people that it feels unattainable. And like you said, Mm -hmm. like people assume that if you have an advisor that you're wealthy and then, you know, they automatically take themselves out of that, that mindset or that race. Mm -hmm. But I'd love for you to shed some light on your background and you know, how you got to where you got. Sure. So my background, I was born and raised here in Las Vegas. I went to private school my whole life. And the reason why I'm telling you that is because I had no business going to private school my whole life. Um, From the outside looking in, I think a lot of people would see my family, myself, and how I choose to dress and act and where I place myself socially. And they'd probably say, oh, she's very wealthy. She came from a very wealthy family. When the reality is my parents were very hardworking business people. My dad dropped out of the school in third grade. My mom just graduated high school. I was the first generation college graduate. I was also adopted. Um, There's a lot of things and weird family dynamics behind all that that I could go into. But basically, my parents worked their hardest and did the very best that they can. And they're the hardest working, most generous people that I know. But I can honestly tell you that we spent our whole lives kind of keeping up with the Joneses. And they wanted me to be around people and families that did way better than them. And even though they were very successful in business, they always thought, how could we be better? How could we do better? Let's put my daughter in something more opportunistic than we had. And I know all of this now because of our adult conversations that we had. But when I was little, I remember going to birthday parties with the grandchildren of some of the wealthiest families in town. And I remember these houses that I'd walk into and these parties we'd have. And there's like, I went to a birthday party. There was like 500 kids and there was like staff passing out hors d'oeuvres and like cocktail. It was just crazy. Like that's not a normal childhood birthday. But I grew up thinking that was normal because that's what I was around all the time. So you can only imagine when I get into high school, I'm again, still in an affluent high school, private high school, going to college. How are you going to pay for college, Dominica? Because you didn't get good grades and we don't know how to pay for college. So I took out student loans. My parents helped me. I started working at 16 um, to start saving for college because I kind of knew that wasn't really an option. So I know this is kind of like a long winded way of describing my background, but When it comes to finances, I always tried to maintain in my adulthood what I always had in my childhood. And I thought, okay, well, now it's up to me to keep this going because my parents have to worry about their retirement. They can't just keep funding this lifestyle I've had all along. And so even into my adulthood now, I find myself backpedaling and just trying to keep up with these standards that I've set for myself, right? Because once you achieve a certain goal, you keep wanting to level up, level up, level up. And that can be dangerous. You're not careful. Um, but having that background, it's interesting because I think a lot of people, either they come from extreme poverty and they're inspired to make a complete 180 or they come from wealth where this is normal and they just continue on the path that's normal to them. For me, it was like, well, I spent my life keeping up with the Joneses by default. And now it's like, I want to be the Joneses. (laughs) I don't want to keep up with the Joneses. So that's kind of the long winded version of that. But it's, it still inspires me to this day to think what I can accomplish, how many people I can help. And just keep that going. And that's just finding your passion and something that happens to also make you successful. I think like being able to make money from your passion or being able to find that within it is so important. But that brings me to really my next question, which is about the pathways to financial success, because Mm -hmm. what we're really talking about is every single person's circumstances kind of indicate that pathway. Mm -hmm. So I've noticed in my adult life that women and young people don't have the same financial pathways as rich white old men, you know, not (laughs) to say it nicely, but you know, the older generations, people who have had familial wealth, generational wealth passed down to them, or just have been around during times. Like I know my parents never had generational wealth. My grandparents were very poor. Mm -hmm. Um, and they worked 
like your parents very hard for my dad to go to medical school. And my dad always did very well. But the concepts of wealth is um, something that is taught. It's not just something you're born with. Right. So in your experience, obviously not coming from the most wealthy family in the world, like Tasha and I also didn't, you know, working class families always having to work hard. How um, have you seen these financial pathways either broaden or like what about these types of things for women? How can they protect themselves? Because really, I find it difficult to say like, oh, I'm going to buy stocks or I'm going to buy bonds or I'm going to you know, invest more in my 401k or I need life insurance or there's just so many opportunities for wealth. And I feel mm -hmm. like it's so overwhelming for young people. Um, where do you like what where do you start with this? Gosh, so one of the best things somebody can do is have a mentor. Um, but there's two parts to that. So in the way that I've grown up, I've always latched onto people that I looked up to. So whether it's someone in the community that I admired, I remember emailing in college, like, hey, I really admire you, look up to you. Can I learn about how to be like you when I get older? I mean, it sounds so cheesy, but seriously, some of my most amazing mentors that I still have to this day came from me just blindly reaching out, just wanting to be around people that I could learn from. Um, I did a lot of self-education. So again, the internet's great in a lot of ways that I've been able to just self-teach myself a lot of these concepts. Like, but to your point earlier with reading into blogs and different just avenues can be misleading, right? We can also fall down the rabbit hole of a lot of bad advice. But one of the biggest things for me have just been really surrounding myself with people that I admire, joining organizations of like young business owners, entrepreneurs. Um, real estate's always been a passion of mine also. So it's like I gravitate to real estate investors and I just ping them and I say, hey, where can I learn more about your trade and your line of work? Like, can I join you in your next meeting? What organizations are you a part of? And I think that's an advantage that I think women do kind of have in that realm. We have a lot of disadvantages in other ways. But in this realm, it's been really great to be able to reach out and, and latch on. I think people like to mentor other people, especially women. So that brings me to one of the more interesting points about your line of work, because you are one of the very few female financial advisors in your branch. Mm -hmm. And you and I have had that conversation of like, Hey, like I'm not always taken seriously because a I'm attractive, like, sorry, <laughs> but I'm going to, I'm going to plug you to there. Yeah. <laughs> I try. I um, strive. <laughs> Dominica is a very beautiful young woman. She is fit. She is like short and petite. Like she's so cute. I can't tell me more. Uh, yeah. And also very fashionable. And, uh, you know, I've said this in other podcast interviews or, you know, Taylor and I've had these conversations where it's like, yeah, I'm going to have glitter nails and I'm going to wear high heels and I'm going to wear full face makeup that I would wear during the day and at night. And that doesn't mean that I'm any less capable or smart than anyone else in the room. But I know that there's institutions that aren't as receptive to that kind of mindset. And, you know, you've had to even sign off your name and emails differently just mm -hmm. so people don't necessarily know that you're a woman and, you know, having to conceal like your gender just to be taken seriously on an initial, uh, an initial basis is something that I really want you to talk about. Oh, it's for sure. very interesting. Definitely. So um, in regards to being a female in this industry, I will say it's it's interesting because statistics say that only 16 percent of financial advisors are women. So right there, I'm already outnumbered. Um, I am one of the few female advisors in the branch, and I think it's just partly because a lot of women aren't going out for these roles in their career paths that are a little bit more male dominant and more male centric. Um, but in regards to ta being taken seriously in the workplace and in my realm and in my industry, being a female is tough because you walk the fine line of, well, I have an advantage because I can connect with other women, right? And I can relate on a way that maybe men can't. But in the same regard, I can't tell you how many times I've been approached by men um, to schedule meetings. And then it turns out they're just looking for company or they don't want to talk about business. And it's something that I always, always run into. And it's so funny, the 
variety of advice that I'll receive. Like, oh, well, were you wearing a short skirt? Were you wearing high heels? Well, oh, well, how do you dress? And I'm like, if you guys saw how I dress, I wear a suit to work almost every day. I'm covered head to toe. My makeup is modest. Like, look at me right now. Like I am covered up head to toe. Like I'm not asking for this kind of attention. And it's kind of like anyone listening to this is like, oh, poor you humble brag. But it's a serious thing for women. And we can look and act and dress the part. And we're still always trying to fight for that level of respect. It's I also tough. want to touch on that, the the skirt and high heels of it all. It's like, how come dressing like a man is the only professional standard, right? right. Like if I want to wear a dress, that doesn't mean that I'm asking for it or it doesn't mean that I'm don't know what I'm talking about. And I've told you this before. I did advise a financial advisor for a separate branch. And, you know, he really gave me the insight into talking about how men in this industry in a very recent time period viewed women and they're totally excluded out of the conversation intentionally, mm-hmm. um, usually because they're not the ones who bring in the most wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the times women inherit wealth or they acquire it from their husbands. Um, and that's unfortunate as well. But I was telling him like that, that landscape is really changing. You know, mm-hmm. now millennials in particular get married later in life, if at all. You know, they're not always having kids. You and I talked about that. Oh, yes. um, but also that means women are now more in control of their finances than ever. And they have more money than they ever have. And that's really important that these institutions pay attention to these changing trends that we're not people to ignore. And if I'm wearing a bikini and I'm still giving you financial advice, listen, because I know (laughs) what I'm talking about. Like, it's so frustrating (laughs) to me, you know, but I I get what you're saying. And and, and it's really unfortunate. And I have a friend who works as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. She's like, oh, I literally don't brush my hair and I don't wear makeup because I don't want anyone to not take me serious. Right. And she's like, she's so girly girl, like loves to wear makeup, loves to like was a cheerleader. And it's like, why do you have to dull your shine? Because men can't control themselves. Right. That's not my problem. Or just because of archaic ways that we view the professional workplace. Right. Like very old school mentalities that are thankfully being washed away at this point. So I think it's unique because I kind of I don't like that type of thing. But I think as a woman, I really like to exploit that. Like, I think that it's so funny how like, yes, we complain about this, you know, short skirt and, you know, the heels thing. But on the flip side of that, I think as a person, I've never worn a short skirt. You know this about me, but I'm just like, um, (laughs) basically, you know, putting on a full face of makeup, for instance, for me or, um, you know, telling some, you know, just being personable in general, because it's not even I don't think what you look like. I think you're a genuinely nice person. Mm-hmm. And you talk to people and you're just happen to be an attractive woman. And I think this is the context of sexuality in the workplace as like a, a comment and a statement. And that that concept is really changing. Like now we're thinking about gender equality. Now we're thinking about like all these really in-depth things. And I do think the finance world, I think the law, like legal world, I think a lot of these very ensconced establishments within our community and society are not moving on. Mm -hmm. And we can see this by the way, you know, 65 year old to 50 year old men treat you in the workplace because you're 30 and gorgeous, you know? Sure. And it's like, you could literally be the ugliest 30 year old on the planet and you'd still be getting advances because you are still a 30 year old woman, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think the assertion of power also comes with that. We always assume it's because of us. And I've realized in wealth and in participating in higher circles, maybe not like financially, but just being around Um, that is a dynamic of power. I've seen a lot guys asserting their authority with, you know, even maybe not sexually, but like, have you had an experience where like, because you were a woman or because you were young, 
um, it didn't like you didn't get a client like your sales based. You know what I mean? So I'm like, have you seen that? Like not even sexually, but just like, you know, aggressively as a business. Definitely. I see it all the time. And it's I used to think that, oh, maybe I'm not getting the client because of X, Y, Z reasons. But I also realize that it's kind of up to us too to present ourselves in a way that demands respect right off the bat. And I can tell you that early on in my career, I was a lot different than I am now. I think I was a lot more accommodating, a lot more nice, a lot more of an order taker and a yes girl. And I think the girl boss culture can be a little bit toxic in all of this because I think it's great that women want to empower each other and we want to lift each other up. But I think there's a lot of fluffiness and flowers and pearls and that those connotations that don't really associate well with professionalism. So I think there's a lot of work to be done on our end and how we can be presentable and, you know, look, sound, be the part all the time and actually implement our values and work ethics and not just chant. We're great because we're women. I think that's so important. Um, Amen. And Taylor and I have talked about this and we talk about it often because a we're young women trying to lead a business Mm -hmm. and B we're trying to not, we're trying to undo the teachings that we have to be accommodating at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because I think by nature, I'm a little bit more of an aggressive person. Like I wouldn't say aggressive. I think more assertive is kind of the word, but it's also trying to find a neutral ground with explaining your intention with your staff um, or yourself in business, but also trying to not come off as, you know, the B word. Right. <laughs> and, and there is a fine line there, but also I've had bosses who do you think they care about being accommodated or being called to be word? Absolutely not. They're throwing things. They're being crazy because and work is to be done. Because work, <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and I think that over the past, like even month, Taylor and I have really had to take a look at ourselves in the mirror and say, we cannot continue to be accommodating like this because mm-hmm. we get taken advantage of. And we absolutely have been yes men. I mean, even within our own business and it's rapidly changing. You just walked into a situation where I'm like, yeah, now I have to be the bad guy because this person has been taking advantage of our company or of our accommodation. Sure. And so anyways, not to, to harp on being a dragon lady, but But no, to add to that though, too, I think a lot of it is our upbringing and I can't speak for all women, but I know I've bonded with girlfriends over this, that when you're growing up and you're a child, then a preteen, then a teen, a lot of our habits and the way that we are forms from things that we shouldn't do. Be a lady. Don't slouch. Don't talk with your mouth full. Don't do this. Don't do that. But not a lot of is spoken to what we should do, right? Do speak your mind. Do be assertive. Do have a plan in place. Do be organized. It's a lot of don'ts. And so I think at a very young age, we're shut down. And then that carries with us into our adulthood. And we're trying very hard not to bring out any negative qualities or not to rock the boat, right? Oh, definitely. And I think conflict is the word here. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's in problem solving. You're always going to come up with some sort of conflict in complex financial situations and running a business and whatever you're doing in general, having problems is a very normal function of life. And that conflict is where I, I know I struggle as a person. I can be the worst human being ever. I can, I <laughs> wanted to be a trial attorney my whole life. So I'm like, I went to debate. I can debate you to the floor if I felt like it, but I just don't like it anymore because that conflict never was able to help me solve problems in a constructive manner. Because as a woman, you're always taught like, Hey, it's not okay to be assertive. It's not okay to, you know, think with this or that, or to make waves. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm making waves. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And it's like, no, you can't even, I say sorry in the grocery store, like all the time. And I'm like, why am I saying sorry all the time? So this boils back to just being able to endure conflict and being a strong person And it's way harder than it sounds because I think we sit here all as very strong women, but I know each and every one of us probably like 
deals with a certain point of not wanting to go down that road because it's exhausting. I don't know how men are selfish this much. It is so shocking to me. Like (laughs) how, how it is so exhausting to think about yourself this much in life. And then on top of that, it's not evenly distributed. Like, I think as a man, I would feel like, oh my God, like the world is so unfair for these people, like, you know, inequality. And then you're not treated any better, you know, in, in any other place. But how has Morgan Stanley been? Like, I know you're one of the few, I'm sorry, like, like, on my but I'm I'm like, I'm interested because it is a top, it is a a name we all know, you know, that's like a top bank. So has that culture, I know that you've been there for a while. So has Mm -hmm. that been a good, obviously better than not. Mm -hmm. Um, I really love the company and more than ever, I just think that being in this business has allowed me to help a lot of people, which is the most important thing to me. Um, when I came over to the firm, I had a great connection with my now boss, who has just been a great mentor to me, has taught me a lot of things and I receive a lot of support and I'm surprised to see how welcomed and supported I am in what could be a very cutthroat and intimidating industry. So I will say it's been awesome. I have no complaints. So to touch on what you just said that you get the opportunity in this industry to help people. Can you tell me what the biggest mistake is that you see your clients making, Mm -hmm. Um, especially in the world? Like, well, I guess that's it's a layered question because you obviously don't just deal with people coming into your office saying, what do I do? Like you obviously manage an array of financial portfolios. So you manage trusts, you manage, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I think investment portfolios as well. Correct. Yeah. Um, And then you obviously have to unravel estates sometimes and say, oh, my gosh, like, have you had these meetings with your significant other and or your family and talking about these really important topics? So what are some of the mistakes you see people make and how would you advise against that? Sure. So I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make, and by the way, this can go for any income level or asset range. Um, just to touch on what my unique specialty is, our firm minimum is 250,000 in investable assets, but my specific area of expertise is in the one to $5 million space. Um, just basically the layers of complex financial planning, tax efficient investing, multi-generational wealth transfer. But with that being said, anyone listening to that would say, oh, wow, I bet you those people have it all figured out. When really, I think the biggest mistake that people make is waiting. To, to take action in their finances. And I see it all the time. I'm going to wait to invest until the market crashes. I'm going to wait to buy a house until the market dips. I'm going to wait to start my business until I make more money. I'm going to wait to invest in my 401k until I make more money. And then before you know it, those months have turned into years and you've missed out on all that growth and opportunity, whether it's financial or non-financial growth, right? I think it's a huge, huge mistake that people make. And I just think when you have an idea or a goal in mind, short or long term, get someone on your side that's a professional that can help you achieve those goals. And then maybe you're not ready to do something today, but put a plan in place that will allow you to be ready maybe a year from now, but it's put on your calendar or it's set for the future and you're working towards it. Okay. I have to ask because everybody knows I love stocks and bonds. Like it is my, <laughs> I call it yuppie gambling because yes. I'm not allowed to gamble in Las Vegas. So like <laughs> if you live here, you don't play here, but Ultimately, I I do really enjoy the stock market. I never look at my portfolio like I'm I'm that human being that's like I gotta just put it over there. Um, okay, so I always tell staff I've been annoying cash and she's like rolling her eyes at me like get your E Trade account, get your Charles Schwab account, get your Morgan Stanley account, like whatever it is that you mm-hmm. want to buy stocks on. How would you tell people who are young to do it on their own? Because I think this is another thing is like th- yes the per- the professional getting it can be hard. You know, if you don't have liquid asset of 250 grand, Mm -hmm. it's a hard one. 
So how can you challenge yourself not having money? Like I, I didn't have any money when I first started a business, but I wanted an Apple stock like so bad. Right. So I went on E-Trade and I bought like my first Apple stock and I bought Square back yeah. in the day when it was like 12, 16 bucks a piece. Right. Um, it's 64 usually now. So I'm like, I, I wish I had $1 million to put that in there, but like, sure. how do you ultimately tell somebody who's trying to participate, who may not have access to a professional because they're not there yet? Um, to play in the market, you know, or to like be just diversifying their money, like ultimately, like, should you just put it all in a savings account? Like, how would you recommend someone young just coming out of school with no money? Sure. So without knowing the entirety of their financials, I would say the first thing obviously is the most cliche advice, but very important, set aside some cash, right? Three to six months worth of living expenses, put it in a high yield savings account. There's a ton of other options out there that are online. I don't know what the rates are today. They range from 1.2 to 1.7 on the high yield savings. Put that aside. Once you've accomplished that goal and you're ready to start investing, there's so many resources online. Um, one of my particular favorites for equity research is Morningstar.com. By the way, this isn't like an ad insert. I genuinely am on there all the time. <laughs> you're like, I read it. I Just promise. so everyone is aware, Morningstar's not getting paid for this. Um, but Morningstar, if you do want to give us money, I'd be interested. Right, exactly. <laughs> but for the self-taught investor, because again, even if you just have $5 in the market, you are an investor. Um, they have so much research. And if you just look through the different articles and blogs that they have, they actually provide advice as to like what you should invest in, the mix of different assets, right? Because there's stocks, but there's also bonds. And then there's those baskets of stocks, which are called ETFs or mutual funds. And so they have a great way of breaking it down in layman's terms to make it easy to read, easy to digest so that you can actually learn the terminology behind it. And I would just do a ton of research, really immerse yourself in a ton of that before you put your money into it. Um, and then I think that's just probably the best way, I think. So I'm going to get probably into more of a controversial topic, mm -hmm. um, but I know that you have obviously seen the assets divided or inherited or taken away from people who are in marriages. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I want to talk about this because I personally have been affected in a way where my mother depended on a man who let us down financially. Mm -hmm. Right. And then as a result of her unpreparedness, we were in dire straits for a little bit. And that really straightened me out into a way of like, you know, being 11 and thinking, wow, like I can't ever depend on a man ever. And how could this person let this happen? Like if I ever get married, the house goes in my name. He'll be, maybe I'll let him live in it. I don't know. Like <laughs> in the closet. In the yeah, room. But he'll he have can to pay rent. Sometimes. Yeah. Like, I, you know, it really scared me to the ways of financial inequality when it comes to married couples. And mm -hmm. we've talked about this and, you know, when it comes to getting divorces or women who are dependent on, on men um, in their relationship. And then also the religious factor that plays into a lot of these decisions and how that right. affects them moving forward. Uh -huh. um, I'd love for you to touch on that. As to how people can protect themselves, that's one of the most talked about topics for sure, especially because quite a few of the women that I am helping in their finances have come into their wealth through divorce or through an inheritance. But to be honest, there's also a lot of instances where women are falling into poverty because of a divorce. There's a statistic out there that says one in three women fall into poverty after losing a divorce settlement and just divvying up the assets in a way that weren't favorable to them. And again, a compounding effect of the whole financial literacy thing. 
Um, I am a huge advocate for having a teaming and partnership type of dynamic in a relationship and everyone's different based on your faith, based on your upbringing, based on what you want out of a partner and out of a relationship. But I always advise people, whether you bring in most or all of the money in the house, whether you divvy it up 50-50, always have your own equity partnership and your own assets because that's when things can get rocky. So for example, if you get married and you commingle all of your money into one and you get divorced and it gets split down the middle, well, it just depends how the court sees it, right? They might split it in a way that's not favorable for you. Um, prenuptial agreements are also a thing and having trust in estate planning properly set up can be a thing. It could work for you or against you if you're not properly versed on how that all works. So I think as women, it's important to kind of be aware of those conversations that we're having, be in those meetings with our CPAs, with our husbands and partners, not because our partners have ill intentions, but because things can get missed. Because I've also seen a pretty significant estate get unraveled and the estate go to a past marriage and former um, stepchildren because the grandfather didn't update the trust, for example. So the new family was out of luck and you know very well that that was not his intention, but it's just, it comes back to having a pulse on what's going on, whether you're a male, female, mother, daughter, grandmother, granddaughter, whatever it is that you are in your family, just you have to know what's going on. You cannot have your hand, your head in the sand with any of it. And I don't, I think that's a theme for everything right now. Like I was telling my sister the other day, I'm like, you need to take literally, like you need to literally take responsibility for everything that could ever happen to you in life. Because ultimately any one of us like could drop dead, like Kobe Bryant died in a plane crash at 41 years old most mm -hmm. amazing person on the planet. And it's like, is Vanessa ready to deal? I mean, I'm sure she is with all of like their planning and stuff, but like, could you just imagine like having to deal with the familial wealth of that? And you better hope to God. She like sat in every meeting, made sure everything was like up to date. Like even the most famous, most beautiful, most wonderful people who have had the best intentions can be unprepared. Right. And I knew this, I found that out when my uncle died. My uncle was 97 years old when he passed away, um, was born in 1920 something and just wrote a will. And I was like, that's going to work out for me. And there was like 94 people in this will. And then you learn about probate court and then you learn about divvying up assets and then you have to sell those assets. And it's like, right. it's a whole thing that if you're not prepared, you really aren't disservicing yourself, but you're disservicing your future. Like sure. your future self is how I look at it. And I was telling my sister, the point of my statement was, um, she's building a website. And I'm like, no, you need to know every single thing about this website. You need to know every single thing about your bank account. You need to know every single thing about people mentoring you, like whatever it is, mm -hmm. that literacy factor has been so neglected uh, for young people and women that it's, it's almost like an epidemic. Like, I just feel like no one knows what's going on. Everybody just, you know, lives wherever, you know, does whatever travels wherever um, and do doesn't even think about like, what happens if my car breaks or. Right. Um, and Dominica, you and I have talked about this too. Like Vegas is a good place to be flashy and oh, not wow. actually have the money to really back that up. Oh yeah. So have you seen a lot of that with your current clients now? And I mean, I know that we have friends who behave this way as well. I see it. <laughs> we have to, yeah. if you know. What I, I mean. see it with people a lot here. I will say growing up here, you have a weird heightened sense of just, you compare yourself to everybody else and everything is flashy to your point. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen people roll up in their Rolls Royces or flash their fancy watches and then they try to qualify for a mortgage and their, you know, their credit score is subpar. They don't have any money in the bank and they're like, I want a $2 million mortgage. And I'm like, hmm, we'll set away. <laughs> but you that's not going to happen. That car and that um, watch. <laughs> it's very easy to compare yourself to the optics and the flashy things. I think it's very much 
not only a Vegas thing, but just in society now too, just like social media doesn't make it any easier. Like with people traveling all the time and the influencer culture, you could easily be sitting there on the couch. Like, well, what am I doing that I can't afford to make those trips around the world? And, but you'd be surprised how many of those girls are taking out loans on their houses or their parents' houses or maxing out credit cards or who's just living off of someone to, to fund that. I mean, I'm not saying that that's the entire conclusion of how these people are doing it, but you can definitely get caught up in the act of just looking at other people and wishing that you had what they had when really underneath it all, you'd be very surprised. Well, I mean, kind of, it's loosely related to what you just said, but as by way of Instagram, really projecting a sense of self or, you know, people just pretending or putting on airs. Forbes just actually wrote an article on the account holder that is shade room. So, which is a woman. And I think she's like 28 or 29. And she was like, I was literally about to get evicted. And I had like hundreds of thousands of followers on, and I had to learn how to monetize this. And that is the only reason why I learned how to monetize it. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was so interesting. It's like, Okay, so even somebody who learned how to navigate through the social space and how to accrue engagement like that, which is priceless, didn't even really understand how to monetize it. But yet she has one of the most it, it's the third most engaged account on the entirety of Instagram. Right. Wow. I'm sorry. That was a weird factoid. Loosely related. But, but no, still. it is related. And it's one of the biggest things I think I've learned is that true wealth is quiet. You know, as you as you grow. um, economically, financially, socially, I think the higher up you get, for lack of a better word, you just crave more privacy and more just you want to reclude into your safe place. And you don't want people to know what you have because you're susceptible to things like bad ideas and litigation. I mean, people could seriously throw themselves in front of your car just to try to get a settlement out of you. I see it. So it's funny. I, I, I use that metric and that stat and just knowing that in my day to day to kind of put myself in check you know, and I try to tell my friends too, like, Hey, like real money isn't out there flashing. I mean, a lot of the families do, but the people that really are secure in themselves in every way possible, they're just, they're private, they're quiet. True wealth doesn't bang loud doors and they're just not loud. I have a question. Do you, is there any one client that you took? Let me rephrase this. Has there ever been a lesson that you learned from a client in particular that really was so profound to you? So like, did you ever see an instance of like someone's circumstance, whether positive or negative, that you were like, wow, like that kind of opened my eyes in a really in a really different way that I didn't expect? Hmm. Um, I do have someone that has been a dear friend of mine for a while, and he is also a client and a lesson learned from him, I guess, just watching him grow over the years and just come into himself as he's getting ready to retire. He's lived in the same house for 40 years and he's never upgraded his lifestyle. Um, and because of compliance, I can't disclose how much he has, but he's more than fine. Um, I love <laughs> more than fine. Um, and it just, it really opens my eyes to see how people like how money really amplifies who you truly are because he's such a humble, nice, just simple person and just having all of the money in the world didn't change him in any way, but yet someone who uses it to validate themselves in one way or another, they might use it to attain material things or be flashy or whatever. And I'm not saying you shouldn't enjoy life. That's not what I'm saying. But with this particular gentleman, he's so humble and he's so sweet and he just never lifestyle creeped on anything. And it's really fascinating. So in terms of a lesson, I don't know. It just, it just kind of makes me look at him and just be inspired and just think like, True happiness is kind of like it comes from within and you can just really be 
having a simple lifestyle and have it all. That really is the best way to describe it. Money will will amplify who you truly are because mm-hmm. you see these people who like get a ton of money. I mean, Akon, hello, like where has he been? And you turn <laughs> out like suddenly you find out that he's been paying for every person who like ever lived college tuition right. for the past like 10 years. He's like, I'm not making hits. I'm literally making college tuition payments for like randoms, you know? Wow. And then you, <laughs> you know, that's and my then dream, it, randoms. Yeah. But then you get like the Harvey Weinsteins of it all where it's like, okay, I get money and then I want to take advantage and exert power and, mm-hmm. and, and this kind of ego and persona on people. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I hate that. I just used two men as, a, as an example of us talking on about women in finance. But. Uh, no, because it, it's it's also well, I'm glad you use Akon because he's black and from another country, right? So that's <laughs> fine. Um, but I think, you know, the Harvey Weinstein of it all is a cultural norm. Mm-hmm. Like that that he just sim- symbolizes or like signifies such a large part of what society has been, what we have all lived through. I mean, like if you talk to anybody that's not, like I said, over the age of 45 and Caucasian, their version of life is a lot different than, you know, the three of us sitting here who've had very working class parents, possibly even parents, you know, who are ethnic based, because that's the other thing in economics. I was telling Dominica before the podcast, like I truly find economics interesting because it's a bag of marbles. Mm -hmm. Like no one is born deserving uh, any more than another. No one is born to anybody more worthy. Like economics is sincerely based upon circumstances and how hard you're willing to go outside of that. Right. And I I don't think that why you using two men as an example, because I think a lot of women, A, don't have their story so plastered. I mean, really, it's Oprah and like a few other very key people who have that type of self-generated wealth. But when you look at men, you know, they're like, oh, entitled, like, oh, this and that. So I'm hoping in 50 years, we too will have the Akons and the Harvey Weinsteins of women, even though Harvey Weinstein, I could not take as a woman. Uh, but, you know, I think it's, it's just true to the t- true to our entire life growing up. That's our symbol of success has to be a man because there's very few women in the world that have gotten to the level of success that the three of us sitting here expect to make. You're like, I want to be the Joneses. And I'm like, I want to be Mr. Jones. Actually, I don't want to be Miss Jones. Like I'm not sitting home drinking martinis, vacuuming the floor. For, well, that would be fun. But no. You know what? I, well, I don't know. Sometimes I think about 1950 and I'm like, if it wasn't racist, it might have been fun. <laughs> and I find cleaning soothing. So, okay, low key, I like to clean too, but my Come mess. On, you know, we only. all have it. We all no, 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 I clean because it's therapeutic, but I live alone and I like clean my own space. So it's like, okay, right. I like to, it makes me zen for me. Um, but. <laughs> Not That's because it's my zen family for me. Yeah, it's yes. like Zen AF for me only, uh, not for other people in my apartment. But, you know, I think that I, I do want to talk about this, too, because Taylor and I, I think Taylor's still on the fence about having kids. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that comes from the expectation of her family. And I think she's torn in a place where it's like, OK, like I finally found my groove in business. Do I want to give that up to accommodate the wishes of my husband and or my family? Where me, my my Nana tells me 10 times to Sunday, don't have kids. It's not worth it. Every day she's telling me, how are you and David? Don't ever have kids. <laughs> right. Um, That's where you guys going to get married. You, yeah. Don't have a baby. Yeah, don't have kids. I'm like, yeah. okay. And don't drop it over here. That's yeah. what Arthur says. <laughs> but, you know, and I don't really want to have kids, you know. And, you know, I think as, A, as millennials, which, you know, not to harp on, but it is a fact of our generation that we are honing in on our independence. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I can relinquish that. And I, you know, even the other day I came home and I was so busy and just so tired. I'm like, I can't even imagine taking care of my husband and a kid right now. Like 
Right. In this economy. I have to feed both of them. Yeah. <laughs> like, with I'm my so money. tired. Yeah. With my money. I'm so tired. Right. Um, so what are your thoughts and feelings on that? Are you going to have a baby? Do all that stuff? <laughs> oh my goodness. And my boyfriend is going to listen to this and he's like, no, say no. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never really wanted kids. It, it's never been something that was high on my priority list. And I don't know why I feel like I've just never had a strong maternal instinct in me. Same and then girl. I just think I'm, I don't know if selfish is the word, but I think because of my my field of expertise, I guess, I see how much college costs and I see how much daycare costs. And when I'm looking through these cash flow analysis, I'm like, uh-huh, not having kids. Okay, not having kids. This is affirmed for the 3300th time. Um, it's It takes a lot, a lot of personal, financial, professional sacrifice. And I don't want to offend anyone that has kids and loves it or who you know, heaven forbid, can't have kids. But for me personally, I am too selfish and I want to retire early. And <laughs> I'm just backing out the metrics of what's realistic. And I can't accomplish that with the kind of life I would want to give my kids because they would go to Meadows and then Gorman and they would go to USC. Girl, we just and then paid there for goes, Melinda's baby to go yeah. to Meadows. And I'm like, these are mortgage payments. Right. And, and then, then I'm like, and there goes oh, my oh, retirement. I'm sorry. Melinda, <laughs> Melinda is our, um, our account. Like she's our bookkeeper and she's been a dear friend of mine and her baby is going to Meadows and she is a single parent and she has literally had to work three jobs for mm -hmm. him to go to private school because she's like, Taylor, I have a black baby. Like I want to have, well, like he has to go to Harvard. Like we have to like make sure he has education. And I'm like, wow, at 29, 27, 28, she's 28 years old. You're thinking about your four-year-old's entire education. And I'm like, can barely brush my hair in the morning. So Good for it's her. a That's awesome. exact, I, I That's think it's awesome. amazing, but I really did this last year with Melinda get to see the openings of, I mean, preschool is mortgage preschool is 1500 and up a month for these schools. Like mm -hmm. there is no, like, and, and I don't even know what a, a true, like cat, you know, the most Catholic of them all type school would have been because my, and my other nephew, my nephew is going to go to a uh, private Catholic school in LA for the football team. And I'm like, if we had to pay full tuition for that, I would be like, okay, we got to like sell our house or something because there's just no possible way. And that's why I'm on the fence. I I'm not on the fence because I know I wouldn't be a good mom. Like I think all of us would be really good parents. Like mm -hmm. we all had, you know, amazing figures in our lives to be our, you know, types of parents. But I also think that the expectation on us is completely different. Like, oh my goodness. Like my mom was like, yeah, I was one of the only women in my whole life that had the same expectation as a doctor's wife. Mm -hmm. You know, she's like, they, the doctor's wives weren't working. They were laughing at me like that. I had to work with Arthur all day long and she just loved it. So, you know, the fact that like we've had to work our whole lives as women is also eye opening because it's like, OK, so you want me to work the same amount, make one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, get fat, have a baby, take care of that baby, take care of you and continue to make this hundred and fifty thousand dollars like where? where? So the F.A. that I was advising for his uh, women's network. What's an F.A.? financial advisor. <laughs> we already said that. No, but he was talking about the mommy penalty, which is the penalty uh -huh. professionally that women actually take on um, or a term that women take on when they exit the work workforce, which is typically two times within their cycle of professional career. Um, and that obviously leads to a lack of putting in those extra hours, getting promotions, being consistent in your work product. Um, at the expense of also what is expected of us, which is biologically having kids mm -hmm. and then being the caregivers. And it's just crazy to me because I'm like, well, hmm, I'm not going to do that because I also don't know that, you know, 
talk about stock markets, having a kid, like, what if you have a bad one? (laughs) And then it's just a bad investment. Yeah, it's just a poor investment, in my opinion. You know, Taylor is lucky because she comes from a family that is very tight knit. Um, My family, not that we're not loving or close, but like, ain't nobody paying for anybody else's college tuition. It's Mm -hmm. not a collaborative thing. It's like if your parents can, great. If your parents can't, too bad. Get loans. Um, But you know, and I know that you kind of experienced some of that as well. And it's just, I don't know, like it's something that's really interesting. I'm almost convinced that no millennial women are going to have kids. <laughs> They're going to see a huge population <laughs> drop off. Well, I know that's not true because all these people around me having babies making me feel right. weird. All three of them. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, and no one, at, no one at work right now. And no one wants them because it's statistically stupid. It's mathematically not intelligent to have a baby, but I think that People excuse that because the physical experience is transcends financial. Like there are some things that I would just blow money on. It wouldn't be a Tesla, but it might be a baby. Um, and <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, have you seen any of your clients save for things like surrogacy? No, actually. Oh, I've been thinking about this for a while because the average cost of having a surrogate baby or not a surrogate baby, but even IVF or scooping your eggs and having one later is a hundred grand and up. Oh, wow. And I'm like, well, out of a $1 million portfolio, that is 10% to just get pregnant and have a baby, nonetheless pay for it. So it's interesting because millennial women won't even have to think about if they're having children. It's how can we financially source them later? Because that's really what it is. It's like farming babies for later because it's like you got to make this 150 to pay for your baby later. So like I'm, I, I should have just had one at 19 and been judged the other way because I would have been almost done by now. My baby would have been 10 and it would have been better. I'm like, I, you can't win because you're either 49 and old and being judged or you're 19 and too young and stupid. So yeah. that's why I'm stuck in having a baby because my husband is fantastic. He would be the best dad ever. I do think I will try to put my body through that at least once in my lifetime. But like, yeah, I told him, I'm like, if this is hard at all, like if I even try for one day and like, can't do it. One, I can't deal with rejection like that Two, Cause your body rejecting is like a whole thing. Like talking to these women, trying to get pregnant, then not, then having to like get a surrogate, then that not working out. Like you financially have to plan to have babies at this point. And it's not just taking six weeks off. It's like, <laughs> do I want to like pay $5,000 to store my eggs for 10 years? Right. And it's like, I've never in my life, like, my aunt thinks I'm insane. She's 88 years old. And she's like, what do you mean? Like, uh, like, what do you mean? Freezing eggs. She's like, that was a thing we did at the grocery store, <laughs> not at the doctor's office. I'm like, I, I find it interesting that you have not had anybody like no, really be talking yeah. at 30 years old to, and it just is a testament to the most people thinking about that probably don't have a million five and you know, the bank and they're just over here on insurance because you know, when that happened to you guys, when they talked about freezing eggs was at UNLV. I was sitting in UNLV. I was about to do, uh, I was going to be going into law school at like, I wanted to do that. And, um, they came in in one of my 400s classes. It was like a health and women's class. And they were talking about how there's like affordable programs for you to be freezing your eggs. Like this is an advocacy that's going around, you know, obviously with the democratic party, but still (laughs) like, I think it's interesting that we're talking about this and that it's actually a componency of financial advising that I feel like no one talks about. Right. No one talks about any of that. Well, yeah. And I, to be honest, there hasn't been a lot of conversations in my world around it. So it's interesting. Well, why would sure. it? Because it's male dominated. 
I mean, they're not worried about paying a thousand bucks for baby. They're just like, I no. hope she's not pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Okay. So I feel like we really covered a lot of the topics that we wanted to dive into. A Dominica has been just incredible at being such an orator. And like, you're, and, like yeah. you're just really yeah. a podcaster. So oh, like you should you. come on all the time. Um, yes. We will listen to your financial podcast. And EJ, I would love that. Oh my, love God. Financial. oh my gosh. <gasps> Dominica's mil- minis millions. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. <laughs> How to be himself my millionaire. <laughs> oh my God. I'm actually going to steal that. Okay. Like, no, I just, a light bulb moment just went off in just, my head. She's a marketing genius. Perfect. We're literally just going to have um, Rose do Rose network and we'll just have a network of podcasts. That That's do I her care? role, by the it way. Is. This is everybody, just so you know, Cashin wants a network and it's going to be you and Pina and the two of us. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be like Justine. Oh, Justine is our receptionist who you love so much. But anyways, um, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Dominica, can you please tell everyone where they can find you? Yes. So I'm on LinkedIn. Um, just type in my name, Dominica Deanna. D-O-M-E-N-I-C-A. And then I'm literally only Domenica, probably in the nation because I have such a weird name. Um, But I really mean this. Anyone that's listening, no strings attached. If you have any questions about how to organize your finances, where do I go for investing? This is by no means a solicitation, but just I think people are often nervous, intimidated or all of the above to even ask the questions. Like if you can use some advice or need help and direction, feel free to reach out. Seriously, I I love helping people and I'd be happy to help in any way that I can when it comes to simplifying all of that for you. And if you work at the pool and you're wasting your money, call Dominica. Because she's pretty and she knows how to spend your money right. (laughs) Um, I will totally solicit Minnie's services for you guys. It's so important for us as listeners, as millennials, as people in general to be financially prepared. I literally took a preparedness test for... I think it was Fidelity Mutual when I said, like I started an account with them and it said at the rate of my savings, I would be able to retire at the age of 94. And I have not been right since. Oh, he's got to work on that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> got to change that number to 44. And I have not been right since. So you guys, <laughs> please check out Dominica. I definitely will be having her back on our podcast to talk a little bit more with you guys. But um, Minnie, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. And Taylor on Wednesdays, we, we drink, drink pink. pink.